Hey everyone, welcome back to Tiana Project. Pumped for joining us today. Today I have Dr. Jim Spiegel and Andrew Cronich talking about universalism or annihilationism, looking at like the doctrine of hell. Um, so Andrew, Jim, thank you for joining me. How are you guys doing today? Good, thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm super pumped. We're going to get into a conversation talking about um, hell. Andrew would lean towards like a universalist side of things and Jim towards like more like an annihilationist perspective. Um, before we get into like the topics, we're going to just have like an informal discussion. Let's start with Jim. Do you want to just give like a brief introduction about like who you are and what you're all about? So I'm a philosopher, um, I guess in a <clears throat> professional way that goes beyond what is true of everybody. I think everybody is uh, searching for meaning and understanding in this world. Uh, but I taught at Taylor University for 27 years, and I'm currently head of school at Lighthouse Christian Academy in, uh, in Bloomington, Indiana. My research interests um, have mainly been in uh, philosophy of religion and um, ethics with a special um, deep interest in uh, the intellectual virtue of open-mindedness, um, the doctrine of hell, uh, the problem of evil, which is closely related uh, subject there. And um, yeah, various issues in, in ethics pertaining to the you know, kind of practical moral issues, human sexuality, and so on. Mm. All right, Andrew, do you want to talk a little bit about like, who you are just to introduce yourself? Sure. And uh, first of all, uh, Dr. Spiegel is being very humble. I have his book right here, Helen Define Goodness. Very good book. Also, while I was at Liberty University, I have another book I want to show here that I'm sure Dr. Spiegel is familiar with. This look familiar at all? I've seen that. <laughs> this is another book that Dr. Spiegel co-authored with Stephen B. Cohen. I highly recommend it. As far as my background, I'm a graduate from Liberty University. I'm currently a master's student at Princeton Theological Seminary. And I have a forthcoming book that's highly anticipated on the subject that's coming out with um, criticism and feedback from people like Tom Wright, Richard Swinburne, Bart Ehrman, and endorsements from David Bentley Hart, John Milbank, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, that's a little bit about me. Yeah, right on. So the format for today, we're going to be talking about um, the doctrine of hell and like looking at like um, where do the chips lay and trying to think about like what church history, scripture, and like theological implications um, may have. So the format is we're going to start with church history, just have basically an informal discussion. So I'm going to let Andrew and Jim talk about their views and how they relate to church history. And what I'm thinking is I'll probably just take myself off the screen so it's you two, um, but I'll be right here and ready if I need to like add anything, but I don't feel like we have any issues. So um Maybe we should, I don't know who wants to start in framing this discussion. Um, I have a uh, one comment that I want to make first. I told the gentleman yesterday when it comes to this issue now. I often get when people find out that I'm a universalist, a term I don't very much like. I prefer a restorationist. But when that happens, they take it out that I'm like that proud mother, right, whose son was in the marching band. And when he was passing by, the mother whispered to a friend near her. She said, look, everybody is out of step except my son. <laughs> All right. So, so that's um, that's how many people view me uh, or those of my disposition. That's simply not true. And that's why I would think it's important, uh, not just for me, but for the conditionalists to show that our respective views actually go back to the early fathers and that they're not forbidden or anathematized by the ecumenical councils or by the creeds themselves. I mean, Sergius Bulgakov, one of my heroes, once said that as for him, orthodoxy can be summed up in the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian Creed. Well, if that's the case, then 
universal and unconditionalism are just not condemned by either of those creeds. So I just wanted to put that out there. Jim, anything you want to say before we go into this discussion? No, that's good. I, I have made the same sorts of um, points regarding conditional immortalism, right? That there's a long uh, church tradition going back to the early church fathers and um, punctuated, you know, throughout uh, the last two millennia with various exponents of the view. All right. Well, if you guys are ready to dive into this, let's start talking about church history. I'm going to take myself off the screen and I'll, as we get closer to the end of this little segment, I'll come back in and we'll just keep rolling. Sound good? Good. Sure. Um, so, Jim, if you don't mind, just because I have notes prepared, perhaps it would be um, helpful if I went first, if that's okay. Yeah, great. You're going to have a lot more to say about this than I am. So, <laughs> sure. yeah, I'm a, I love church history. This is one of my, I guess you could say, strong points. So, church history can be very complicated. Um, I guess one of the factors that we have to take in has to be um, the authors of scripture. Is one thing I think about with church history, especially of the Pauline literature. Now, there, as you well know, there are debates about whether Paul wrote all of um, his epistles. And why I say this is because there are, seem to be universalist tens within the Pauline literature. Now, if we date these later than Paul, it would seem that I could say that, or try to attempt to make the case that there are universalists who wrote these letters, um, kind of getting inspiration from the genuine or undisputed Pauline literature. As is, I don't wanna make that case today because I'm not convinced that Paul didn't write all the 13 epistles. So I would look later than that, um, I have, George T. Knight and Edward Beecher are two sources who say that of the six uh, ecclesiastical schools or trends of thought within the early church, there were four that were universalists. I think two were in the stream of Theodore of Mafsusa, and two were the originist tradition. And one was conditionalist, and only one <laughs> was of the disposition of eternal conscious torment. That's quite shocking uh, to me. Now, uh, Jim, somebody might attempt to come back at this and say that George T. Knight, for example, was a universalist and he's biased right when he gives us that um, i have several thoughts there first of all the article that george t knight's uh, statistic appeared in was an encyclopedia by philip shafe I, I don't know if you're familiar with his he is an just incredible church historian and it is partly slander against him to say that this just expert in church history would allow this article to slide the statistic when it's known that he was a fierce traditionalist and a expert in church history. I think that's slander against Philip Shave. But secondly, this statistic also appears in Edward Beecher. And so this isn't just something that's floated around by universalists. And if we were to say that, well, we shouldn't trust George T. Knight because he's a universalist, this reminds me of many in the early church who said, we shouldn't trust the Christian accounts, right, of the gospel events or miracles, whatever, because these are written by Christians. I mean, it's kind of like um, what we saw after the Holocaust when people were saying, we shouldn't trust the Holocaust survivors because they're very biased in this opinion. So just the wave of the hand that, well, we can't trust the statistic from universalists. On one hand, I don't find convincing. And even if it was, we see it backed up by people like Philip Schaefer and Edward Beecher. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, keep going. Yeah, uh, so the other thing I would look at would be the creeds, which uh, we kind of got into a little bit. There's the uh, Nicene Constantinopolitan uh, Creed. There is the Chalcedonian Creed. There's several creeds. And none of these um, is either conditionalism or universalism condemned. What's interesting is that in the case of the Constantinopolitan Creed, it was presided over by a universalist, Gregory Nazianzen. 
And also the phrase that was added uh, into the creed itself, it was the life of the age to come, was added by Gregory of Nyssa, <laughs> one of the most famous universalists of all time. So why wasn't universalism in particular condemned by the creeds? Well, perhaps it had to do with some, the president and some of these people in the council being universalists themselves. Now, this just goes to show that this wasn't an issue that the creeds uh, thought necessary to settle. I mean, Augustine himself in the city of God, for example, he says, now I must enter into a gentle disputation with those of tender hearts. He doesn't call them heretics, those who don't believe that the fires of hell were eternal. Whereas today, that seems to be the case that you and I, many consider our heretics for our view, but that's just not the case even with Augustine or the fountainheads of the traditionalist tradition. Um, beyond that, there is one creed that people often cite that says that does condemn your and my view, and that's the Athanasian Creed. Um, the problem with that is it most certainly, people have known since, I think, believe it was the 17th century, does just does not go back to Athanasius himself for a number of reasons. Also, you won't, you won't find this creed in any of his writings, and you won't find it in the ranks of those contemporary today. There's just no evidence whatsoever that this was an official creed of the church that came from Athanasius that was widely accepted. So um, all that to say that the only creed that seems to, to condemn your my view wasn't actually a creed, a legitimate creed. I mean, so what do you think about that in terms of the creeds themselves? Yeah, well done. I, I'd affirm that. It's a point I often make um, that there's a reason that uh, you have these early creeds um, referring to hell and um, I guess with an implicit warning, um, but not characterizing it in, in terms of its its nature or duration. And that captured the, the consensus, um, <clears throat> whereas uh, endorsing a particular view, you know, any of these three views, while that would have uh, pleased certain segment of the early church population, the early church theologians, biblical scholars, um, many in any case would have disagreed. Right. So you you had uh, you had divergent views, and all three of these views represented um, among the early church fathers, and the best that the <clears throat> drafters of those creeds could do would be to refer to hell, recognize that it's real, um, and then ultimately the finished work of Christ saves us from uh, eternal perdition. Um, but exactly who, how many uh, are saved or how long uh, the denizens of hell remain there since that was disputed on, on so many fronts, then they just left it alone. Um, so I, um, I don't know if that counts as an argument from silence, but given the, the historical context, I think that's the best conclusion to draw there. And it was kind of, I think, implicit acknowledgement that Christians should be free to disagree on that subject without people, you know, banding about the, uh, the tag of heretic as is sometimes used today. Uh, not much. I've only had one person actually call me that, and and they were, um, let's say, not a very nuanced uh, theologian. <laughs> um, but points well taken. Yeah, I think the important thing um, for all sides to acknowledge is what the creed state is that he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Right? There will be a judgment. Um, so that needs to be affirmed. So those who think that there is no judgment whatsoever must be repudiated. 
So there will be a judgment. What is the nature of that judgment? What is the duration of that judgment? Well, that's why you and I are here today. <laughs> but, but we must affirm that there is a judgment. And hell is real, right? Hell uh, is real. Absolutely. Yes. But uh, silence on exactly how long it lasts and actually exactly um, what the necessary conditions are um, for salvation in terms of a human response. That's been actually a subject of uh, serious interest for me. I know it's a popular kind of evangelical idea, sadly, that so long as you have the right cognitive states in place, right, and you're willing to just believe and say, yes, I affirm that, then, then you're saved. But scriptures say that, you know, even the demons believe and shudder and and Jesus remarks at one point that, that some will say, <clears throat> um, Lord, Lord, right? Um, and uh, he will say, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. So what is that extra something besides just uh, cognitive states? That's not easy to say. I mean, it seems like it's somewhere in the direction of um, a genuine moral repentance uh, there, there has to be something <clears throat> conative as well as cognitive, right? An, an engagement of the will in a certain direction of embrace that translates into something in the way of, um, I guess, moral disposition or lifestyle or virtue or however you want to put it. Uh, but that's a really tricky thing to try to work out, especially when you have at the ready certain folks who will immediately cry uh, works righteousness, right? That, that somehow if you, if you identify anything as an additional condition to cognitive states is necessary for salvation, that you're suggesting that it's a works-based salvation. I don't think that follows at all if we understand that any good thing that um, uh, occurs in me is that too is a, a work and a gift from God. But that just shows how, I guess, tricky and thorny that territory is. But um, that's another thing we can uh, we can theorize about and, and dispute. But we know, again, going back to the creeds, that our salvation is uh, entirely achieved by Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there, as you know, there's much debate um, due to the new perspective on how to properly translate the word fides. Uh, should it be faith? Should it be faithfulness? And that, that's a whole another discussion again too. I do want to say something real quick before I move on. When you, you talked about how an individual called you a heretic. Now, the interesting thing is I don't think people know what that word means. Uh, it has varied meaning over the course of church history, but if we want to take its most emphatic sense, it means that logically believing this will damn you. And, and it's quite I find it quite curious. So uh, Tom Talbot got me thinking here, for example. Now, let's say Calvinism is true, okay? And an Arminian, such as Roger Olson, says that the god of Calvinism is the devil. He's far worse than the devil. He's a monstrously evil. Okay, he says that about the god of Calvinism. And let's say that the god of Calvinism is actually true. So what happens to Roger Olson? Now, why I say this is because some people will attack Universal and say, you shouldn't use language about how um, God is like the devil if he's got this place of eternal torment, right? But how can they say that, and yet they turn around and they attack the Calvinists, and they say, oh, God is worse than Satan, God is worse than the devil, right? You see you see the unfair standard here. 
Um, so I think that we need to be careful with the language that we use, very careful, especially when we malign someone as a heretic, because I would take the title heretic, meaning that logically, because you believe this, you will be damned. And I don't think that logically, because you believe Calvinism, because you believe my former universal, because you believe conditionalism, you'll be damned. So calling someone to that just shows that you really don't have any idea what you're talking about on this issue. The person that tagged me as a heretic, by the way, also referred to John Stott as a heretic. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it was, might have been Billy Graham who, who said that uh, if evangelicals could have a pope, it would be John Stott. John Stott, yeah. Back when John Stott was alive. <laughs> yeah. So we'd be in agreement there. Um, I want to move over to one segment, which is the Apostolic Fathers, which maybe you have some familiarity with. And um, I want to dialogue more with conditionalists on this because this often comes up in conversations in church history to show the strength of conditionalism is that some of the fathers do seem to use conditionalist language. Now, I want to caution here because simply because a father uses the words death, destruction doesn't automatically mean that he has the conditionalist definition in mind. For example, um, Augustine and Origen were quite confident using that language, too. So we can't we often come to the text with these preconceptions, uh, right, these preconceived notions and we read them into the text. But we must be careful to elaborate critically what those fathers actually said. Um, and furthermore, there weren't that many apostolic fathers. <laughs> Depending on who you count as an apostolic father, which writing, there weren't that many of them. And so to say that, let's say, 7 to 11 right, individuals, they represent all of Christendom in the majority, is, is just quite odd to me. Um, you could say that the view was present, but to try to make an argument that this view was there for the dominant view is strange uh, to me, especially where... We're assuming that some of these people are literate. I mean, literacy rate just wasn't that high back then. You think the average believer uh, was going to write down their views? And we know that many of the writings have been lost to us over the course of history. So those are just some of my minor concerns I have when people like Chris Date and other conditionalists tried to make this huge argument about how um, the sweeping argument, how, how so many of the apostolic fathers were conditionalists. I'd say we need to be cautious here. Uh, and we need to look at all the evidence in context. Is that a fair summary? Yeah. Very good. I have nothing to add to that. Okay. Well, let me see what else I have um, for church history. I think we pretty much covered a lot of church history. So uh, the more important thing for me, the three categories that we want to discuss, church history, scripture, and philosophical and theological concerns, I think for me and for most people be scripture, right? And um, so I, I will admit this. I'll say that there are, there are differing opinions on how to put this all together. Uh, not everybody is an inerrantist. Uh, not everybody believes in the analogia fide. They simply don't. There, John A.T. Robinson, for example, is an individual who thinks that uh, maybe even Lossky, Vladimir Lossky, think that perhaps there are such tensions in the text that the Bible says that there shall be universalism, but then the Bible says there shall be a hell. And how you figure that out, you know, we wave it up in the air and say mystery, right? So there are different. Some say that Paul may have changed his mind. He may have vacillated on the issue. He may have been, you know, conditionalist at one point and then switched over to universalist. So others believe that Paul didn't write all his letters. All that to say, this is a very, very complex thing about how to put all this together. Obviously, hmm. but um, I, as far as today, I am an anarchist, um, as is defined by the Chicago Statement of Faith. Um, and then I heard to the Analogia Fide. I try to attempt to put the scriptures all together. Now I realize that creates tensions at times. Um, take for example, those who affirm the perseverance of the saints. It's hard to come to the book of Hebrews and not feel that you're really pressing it at times. 
So we have to be careful to make sure that we're actually reading what James said, and we're not reading what Paul said, or we, we want James to read. So do you think that's an accurate summary as uh, far as some hermeneutical concerns? Yeah, very good. I, I would um, characterize myself as an inerrantist as well. Um, <clears throat> and I think when, um, when properly understood, that view should generate a certain hermeneutical humility um, and, you know, there are a number of passages we could, we could point to that, uh, you know, make, um, are affirming that view, maybe challenging at points, but it seems to me as a meta view, right, about the, the nature of scripture, it's a reasonable hypothesis. Um, and it's one that I've affirmed for some 30 years now. Yeah. Um, I think why... Scripture is so important for you and I to look to is because uh, people will often say in response to conditionalists and universalists, well, I believe the Bible, <laughs> right? I mean, what do they think that you and I believe? Socrates, you know? So it's, it's like those churches say here at so-and-so church, we are Bible believing Christians. Well, what do you think they say at the Lutheran church? Here at so-and-so church, you know, we are Confucius believing Christian. It's quite odd. So I think that uh, what's important for people to realize is that both you and I affirm the inerrancy of scripture we both um, believe that scripture is the ultimate authority, but we have differing views. And this has been the same for many Christians throughout history, right? So we have to respect one another's opinion. We're not going to get anywhere by maligning other persons saying, well, you're just not reading the text. <laughs> Brother, people have been reading the same text for centuries and come to different conclusions. It's not, ju it's not just this idea that, you know, they are blinded right, and how they read the text by selfish, uh, you know, emotional reasons, but not I. <laughs> we have to be very careful when we do that. And as you said, I think with every view, there are going to be texts that are going to make it difficult for that view. But we have to try our best, as hard as it can be at times, to attempt to perhaps the word is massage that text. Um, not disregard it, but to see how it might be compatible with other passages of Scripture. Um, something that might come up here is we should see the, the, uh, the non-clear in light of the clear is one of my things, for example. Mm. This will become really important with the book of Revelation uh, in particular, which is a very obscure book at times. I know certain people who can be quite arrogant attempt to say that, oh, the book of Revelation is very simple. It's not. It, there, there are just certain passages that just are not simple. And some of the greatest Christian figures in history have disagreed on the implications of those passages. And so I think that's a good principle to abide by is we should attempt to see the unclear in light of the clear. Is that a good way of approaching scripture? That's very good. I'd add also that just to kind of rebut some popular <clears throat> straw man dismissals of inerrancy, it's, it's not a flat footed literalism. Um, and it also affirms that at least the version of inerrancy that I would affirm and probably you too is that uh, regards what scripture intends to teach. Mm -hmm. um, and there are certain things that are not, the biblical writers don't intend to teach um, that uh, could potentially get in the way in our understanding of um, what uh, scripture is really saying or where we um, are affirming that, that scripture is true in all its assertions. And then <clears throat> with regard to trying to make sense of certain passages, there's a concept um, 
actually uh, in John Rawls theory of justice, Rawls is well-known political philosopher um, from say the seventies to the early two thousands. And um, he recommends when dealing with complex moral issues um, that we take into account um, all the most significant moral principles, say Kant's categorical imperative, the principle of utility from the, the utilitarian tradition, um, concepts of virtue, um, uh, principle of benevolence and, and so on. And we bring all of those principles to bear to the moral issue in question, say a particularly thorny one, you know, like uh, physician assisted suicide or the death penalty. And we try to arrive at that view or that position, which provides the best reflective equilibrium or the least tension. And I think this is very handy as a kind of conceptual tool when we do biblical hermeneutics. You have multiple passages, let's admit it, that seem to be pointing in diverse directions. Some do seem to, to point towards an eternal conscious torment. Others seem to point towards a universalist view, others towards a, a kind of conditionalist view. And um, if we all can admit that, again, I think that will um, <clears throat> encourage a certain epistemic humility, but um, that certainly will help to ward off any temptation of proof texting or here I've got this passage, which is my sledgehammer and there uh, that basically clinches it for me, no matter what you say. Okay. We can grant that whatever passage that you're so fond of is endorsing your view carries a lot of force, but it's not the whole story. Um, and so um, I think that's important uh, moving forward in, in discussions of this kind. Yeah, in fact, it's really annoying to me in Four Views book where I see instead of presenting an argument, you'll see the author will cite like 26 texts, right? Just give the references as if that's somehow uh, to tell his readers that his view is more biblical than the opponent's view. And you suggest um, people are very wise when this happens, just call them out and say, you know, just a quick reference in your book doesn't mean your position is any more biblical than mine is. And so we need to be careful of that in the literature when we're publishing something, just giving a slew of citations. Um, so I absolutely agree with you. And so, um, yeah, let's get into some of these texts. Um, so one of the things I want to get into, first of all, uh, Jim, is the question of Gehenna. And now you being someone who's been involved in this conversation will know eventually where I'm going to, which text, and that's Matthew 10, 28, uh, where Jesus says uh, essentially that don't just fear the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in Gehenna. Now, um, there's a Luke in parallel to this too, which I think we'll get into later. Now, the question is, what does Jesus mean by Gehenna? I mean, this is one of my peeves. It's in Bible translations, right? Um, in Bible translations, we often use the word hell, which is a English and Norse term. Uh, the, for the Norse, it was H-E-L, referred to kind of a similar depiction of how we view hell today. But it, eventually, it essentially means covering. In the old English, that's what hell meant, like covering. So it's, it's not a biblical term. The biblical terms that the English word is substituted for, Gehenna and Sheol and Hades and Tartarus. Um, so it's quite odd to me why the translators designated all as one term. It's almost like they want to shut down any debate, that there's, they're all referring, co-referring to the same 
thing. And I just don't agree with that at all. Neither do C.S. Lewis, neither do many traditionalists today. I mean, uh, many traditionalists do not believe that the word Sheol in the Old Testament uh, specifically refers to a place of eternal torture. Uh, that's not the majority view today. But more specifically, the question is, what in the world is Gehenna? Um, so there are many who want to perpetuate the idea that Gehenna was this place of garbage, right? A smoldering garbage outside the city. Now, that comes from Rabbi David Kimi from France uh, about 1,200 years after, right, the events that he described. He never went, actually, to Israel before. And so John Lightfoot, I know, perpetuated that view, and so does Andrew Perryman. But I think that it is uncalled for, uh, for many reasons. I mean, not just archaeological among them. This view is quite odd. But that's not to say that it's not yeah. touching something else, which is the idea that there is the veil of Hinnom that you and I can hop on a plane and go to today that lies right outside the city. And there was I, child sacrifice. I, I played Frisbee in that valley. <laughs> you played Frisbee in hell? <laughs> <laughs> Good. There's uh, one little frisbee game. That's <laughs> a, a good album title, doesn't it? Uh, frisbee in Hell. But Frisbee in Hell. Yeah. So um, you're very, probably very familiar with history in the Old Testament. Now the argument uh, or the question is, what did Jesus mean by Gehenna? What was the connotation he was ascribing to it? So it seems that both the traditionalists and the conditionalists want to claim that Gehenna is referring to a post-mortem place or fate or state of the soul, whatever you want to call it, but something that happens post-mortem. Now, not all traditionalists are actually agreed on this. In fact, you see the conditionalists hold more so to this view because of their interpretation of Matthew 10, 28, than will the traditionalists. In fact, traditionalists like Tom Wright um, and others are quite fine, like Andrew Perryman, are quite fine saying that Jesus had intra-historical um, reasons of mind for Gehenna. And that is the position that I lean towards, and I want to give several reasons for why I think that is. So, first of all, Gehenna is only mentioned sparingly throughout the entire New Testament. Um, Jesus uses it, and James uses it, and that's it. I mean, that this is incredible. So, all these writers, they're not all writing to just Gentiles. They're addressing Jews, and they never once threaten a Jew um, outside of the Gospels. And uh, James, I think it's 3.6 with Gehenna. This is quite strange to me. I mean, you would expect that, uh, for example, with someone like Paul, uh, we could debate about was he addressing uh, Gentiles or Jews and which epistles or whatnot. Why did he never bring it up? Right? It's, it's nowhere. Also, um, <clears throat> Jesus never threatens a Gentile with Gehenna. Never once does he threaten a Gentile with Gehenna. Also, the New Testament never says that we are saved from Gehenna. Now, we often use language that uh, God, God has saved another soul from hell. It's common language today, right? But the New Testament authors never used that about Gehenna. They never said, praise God, uh, that souls are being saved from Gehenna. Never used. Now, another is the book of Acts. We have the apostolic teaching in the book of Acts itself. Uh, there are about, I think, roughly 17 sermons in the book of Acts. These are the apostles who are sharing the gospel. I mean, if we want to know how to preach the gospel, I would think they're more qualified than someone like Billy Graham. <laughs> These were the followers of Christ. And they address the Jews. I mean, Peter directly addresses them several times in the book of Acts. It's not just Gentiles, it's Jews. And he never once brings up the idea of Gehenna as a place of post-mortem punishment. Never once. Uh, in fact, the teachings of Christ, I would say, better align with the view of intrahistorical judgment. And that Jesus would fall in the line of the prophets. Now, here's a case that my book was too long and I cut out. But um, if this book does well, hey, there'll be a part two. 
Um, so Jesus seems to be falling within the Jeremiah and Isaiah tradition, how they spin Gehenna is how I would say. So, for example, first thing we have to look for is parallels between Jesus and one of these prophets. Well, Jeremiah is told to go to the temple and to perform a prophetic action, right, smashing a jar. Well, Jesus does something very similar. He goes and he overturns tables. Jeremiah pronounces woes upon the teachers of his day. Well, Jesus does the exact same thing. I mean, the parallels are incredible. So Jesus parallels Jeremiah in many ways. In fact, we often call the woes that he pronounces Jeremiah's. And so the idea is, did Jesus have in mind when he was envisioning Gehenna, the view of scripture or the view of the non-scriptural rabbis that developed apart from scripture? Um, seems bizarre. Now, we could date the rabbis, too. There's a case to be made that every single reference that is made to Gehenna is dated after 70 AD. Some say after 200 AD, but let's say 70 AD. That's quite late. Uh, and Justin Martyr is the first Christian to mention Gehenna um, in reference to post-mortem punishments. The first, Justin Martyr, centuries <clears throat> after. So those are some of why I caution the idea that by Gehenna, Christ was referencing a place of post-mortem punishment. Now, someone might say, well, what about James 3, um, 6, or wherever it is in the Epistle of James, where he talks about someone how the tongue is set ablaze, right, by Gehenna, or Jesus talking about those who are children of Gehenna. Um, if you've ever grown up in the urban centers before, people use slander like this all the time, right? Like you tell someone, well, you're a, ch uh, you're a child, you're a son of five points. <laughs> I mean, I grew up north, so I've heard language like this quite commonly. It's an insult that's often leveled against somebody. And so I think it's entirely conceivable to say that the phrase Gehenna is almost became slang, uh, where because of the horrid, wretched things that occurred over time, it was used as slander. Now, beyond that, there is a passage in which Jesus says, um, in escalating terms of one's anger, you will be in trouble from the council, right? This will happen to you, this will happen to you. And then he says, if you call someone Raka, right, if you call someone that, then you're in danger of the fires of Gehenna. Now, some will say, well, there it is. There's post-mortem punishment. Again, I'm just not convinced. So uh, there seems to be some who advocate that perhaps what this passage is talking about is the notion, if you see the levels of punishment being raised, is that this is the highest form of punishment, is that if I was to accuse Jim, a fellow Jew, which I don't know if Jim is Jewish, I'm not, but, it, but if we were in the first century and I accused Jim of being an apostate Jew, of rejecting the Jewish faith and of rejecting the Jewish God, and I had nothing to support my claim. I, I had nothing. It was a false accusation. Well, then, I would suffer the fate of being dishonorably killed, slain, and chucked into Gehenna. Now, we do see language like this similar in the Old Testament, where those who uh, accuse others of a certain crime and can't support it, they are punished to a degree. And we see uh, examples of people who when either them or the totality of their family receive similar punishment in the sense that it's a disgraceful death, right, that is forced upon them. So those are just some of my preliminary concerns, but I'm curious what um, you would think Christ had in mind by Gehenna. Yeah, <clears throat> I am fairly ag agnostic on that part, but um, the, the most salient aspect of that verse seems to me is this, this whole concept of uh, destruction of the soul. Right. Um, fear not human beings who can only destroy the body, but fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. The whole idea that the soul is something that is subject to destruction, um, which you see uh, you, there are other 
passages in, in the New Testament. And um, I think by implication, many have argued in the Old Testament, the whole idea of the destruction of the soul. I'm thinking particularly of a passage like 2 Thessalonians 1, um, where Paul refers to everlasting destruction. I think that uh, those sorts of passages present more of a challenge than anything for those who believe in the, the kind of natural eternality of the soul. Uh, I'm wondering what your take is on that. Sure. Yeah, um, so I have several things. Uh, let me address Matthew 10, 28 first. So as you probably well know, N.T. Wright in The Victory of God takes the view that the one who can destroy both body and soul isn't God. It's actually the devil or Rome. Um, so there is different opinion on this because following that passage, he says, fear the one who does this. But then he says, but don't fear, right? Because, um, you know, God cares for the sparrows. Well, you're even more worthy than a sparrow. So there is debate about who is the one that can destroy both body and soul. Now, I think N.T. Wright is wrong, and I give reasons for this in my book why I think he's wrong. So that's not the view I take. Now, the question is, what is meant by soul? Well, the word suke there has about 14 different meanings, right? So we have to be careful of the fallacy, right? that Don Carson warned about, about unwarrantedly restricting the semantic field, right? Just because it contorts with our view. And so suke has varied meanings. So the question is, well, what does it have? First, I want to uh, point out that there is division among scholars of whether the Bible affirms a trichotomous view of, this, of the human being or a dichotomous view. Now, why is this important? Because our soul and spirit, the same thing. Uh, if they're not the same thing, as 1 Thessalonians 5.23 seems to say, where Paul seems to make a distinguishment between body, soul, and spirit, just as he does elsewhere between father, son, and spirit, then it would seem that the spirit is something different from the soul. And so the question would be, what on earth is the soul? And is the soul different from the spirit? So if you're a trichotomous being, uh, trichotomous adherent, the idea that, well, this, the soul and the body destroyed means absolutely nothing uh, in the sense of annihilation, if you still believe that the spirit continues to exist. Now, what they might take soul to be with that um, consciousness, perhaps, might be wrapped up in that. So if you're a trichotomist, you might say that the person continues to exist in an unconscious state, right? Now, I think there are many reasons for disregarding that interpretation, and I don't take that route at all. So those are two views that others offer that I simply don't take. Um, I take the view that seems to be arising in uh, different areas of scholarship from David Constant, for example, who is a great um, classicist at NYU and a dear friend, uh, David Bentley Hart, Laurie Romelli, and um, certain people across the aisle, that what Suke may seem to have in mind here um, is a sort of status, if you will. I mean, we see precedent for this in certain literature, which kind of like your identity, basically. Suke can be taken in many different senses, but here it might be identity, that Jesus is threatening the people, that um, in the context, he's talking about martyrdom. Um, it is better to die, right, a martyr for God, faithful to God, right? It's better to die that way than to die a shameful death under the wrath of God in rebellion against God and lose your identity in the process. I mean, the Jewish people lived in a shame-honor society. We have to remember that. And so <laughs> saying something like this would have ticked off a lot of people there, that the idea that they could lose their Jewish identity, uh, we see people who seem to be saying throughout that Abraham is our father or God is our father, certain Jews. And John the Baptist and Jesus keep on correcting this language. God can make children out of rocks if he wanted to. So don't cling to this Jewish identity that you think you have, thinking that kind of is like a magical right you have on God, right? Simply because you're Jewish, God must do this. No, I tell you, 
if you do this, right, that identity isn't going to prevent God from inflicting wrath upon you. And um, I think that fits uh, very well with the surrounding context and the message that Jesus is trying to get across, especially if we widen the semantic range of the uh, meaning of suke. So that is a view that I tendentiously hold. Um, and I'm curious what you think would think about that. Also, we do have one passage, I would say, in the Old Testament um, that does seem to connect the idea of a shameful death with being horrible. I think it's um, in Ecclesiastes 3.11, Solomon says that it is better to be, there's debate about how to interpret this, it's better not to be born, how some people take, than to be die and be left unburied, right? To have a shameful death. I mean, that that's pretty... That's pretty strong language there. So I'm wondering what you think about those different interpretations. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not persuaded. Uh, um, and again, you know, it's uh, taking that passage, especially in light of this recurring biblical theme of of destruction. I know that certain other universalists, um, like Robin Perry, who's as gracious a universalist as I know, um, would would emphasize the idea that destruction has more to do with ruin uh, and a kind of um, not absolute obliteration, but uh, I guess something that's temporary that eventually God overcomes um, when he restores people in hell. But uh, <clears throat> I see that as really reading more into the text than is there. Um, I, I suppose it's, it's plausible, but um, when... uh, um, if we could go to the parallel, Jim, I think uh, what really helped me, and I know this can be taken different ways, is the parallel to Matthew 10, 28, that's found in Luke 12, 3, where the ESV says, but I will warn you whom to fear, fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell, now, or Gehenna. Now, he doesn't say fear him who, after, you know, you have, after death is able to do this to you, right? Like after a state of death, there's another state. It doesn't seem like he's describing the, a conscious state of an individual after death. He's saying after he has killed this, he's able to do this, right? He's not saying after after death, he does this to you. Because if he said after death, for example, I'd say, okay, perhaps he's talking about a second state of conscious existence. But that doesn't seem what he's saying. He seems after he has killed, it seems like there's no conscious state of existence there. He can do this. Okay. So, what would you think about the parallel? Yeah, I, it, um, again, I'm, I'm not convinced because, well, we do have other passages as well that, um, that refer to eternal um, destruction, right? That in uh, Matthew 25, in this opposition of e eternal punishment and eternal life, uh, everlasting destruction in, in 2 Thessalonians, I'm curious what you... Yeah, what yeah. You so I want to go to those texts, but I would say, so your reasons for rejecting that interpretation is because of how you interpret other passages, or would it be because of how you interpret this passage? I want to be clear on that point. Yeah, the, um, the other passages, including, yeah, some of the um, Old Testament passages, like, is it uh, Isaiah 66? Yes. So I'm, I'm saying, so it's not for any reason in this text that you reject the interpretation. It's because there are other texts that seem to point away yeah. from that. Okay. Yeah, I don't see, I'm not convinced that, uh, that there are, I guess I'm not persuaded by um, your inter interpretation of, of that text um, alone. Yes, I understand that. So um, 
if I'm understanding you, you don't you don't appreciate or agree with that interpretation because of how you interpret other texts. So that's all I'm trying to point out is it's not because of how you interpret this text, because of how you interpret other texts. And so you would interpret this text in line with those texts. So let's go to another one of them. First um, Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9, right? Now, I, um, you're probably very familiar with the language that has been done on the Greek word ion, the noun form, or ionion, or ionios. And, and this is very, I mean, there, there's not, between traditionalists and universalists, there isn't much debate on this. I'd say that the conditionalists, um, I see in conditionalist literature, they try to propose entirely different definition than many traditionalists and universalists. I'll give an example. Tom Wright is a traditionalist who says that perhaps what the word is referring to, in many cases seems to be doing just that, is that which takes place in the life of the age to come. Now, there are some, so Matthew 25, 46 um, says that there are the sheep and goats, and these will go away. Most Bible translations say into the punishment of the age to come, I'm sorry, in the, to eternal punishment and to eternal life. I think it's a horrible translation for many reasons. Um, but let, let's see why. So, for example, people like St. Augustine have said, well, the parallel there is unmistakable, right? And if the punishment is not eternal, then life cannot be eternal. I think that's bogus um, because we see elsewhere, I think it's in the uh, book of Hebrews. I thought I had it in my notes, but now I'm not seeing it in my notes. Uh, where Actually, it's in, it's in my notes on the book of Matthew. So in the book of Hebrews, it describes with the same word, the mountains as eternal or everlasting and God as everlasting. So I want, so we know that the mountains are going to pass, right? Um, so shall God pass? I mean, is God's, does the word have to mean the same for both? Um, it's like the word great. If I say Jim is great and the dog is great, um, I would think that the adjective is dependent upon the noun. I mean, this should seem obvious for linguistics, uh, linguists. But I don't know why people don't get this. So the idea that, well, if this is eternal, this is not. Okay, then God ceases to exist too. I mean, what a ridiculous assertion is that? So I, I don't think, first of all, I'm not persuaded by that argument. But second of all, I wouldn't even go down that route. I just agree with the majority of interpreters that this is will take place in the life of the age to come. Now, simply because this takes place in life to age to come doesn't mean it will be for the duration of the whole age. So, or of the same length, the two of them. So for example, tomorrow I will go to breakfast. And tomorrow, I will go to classes. Now, both activities occur tomorrow. That's talking about when they occur. But they're, just because they occur tomorrow do not, does not mean they'll be of the same duration. So it's quite. Uh, I find those arguments quite odd. Now, there is another argument to be made about what Jesus meant by Colossus, right? Which was often used, William Barclay overstated the case when he said that every single reference in secular Greek literature meant to remedial punishment. I don't think that's correct. But I do think it was a common term that was used for remedial punishment. Now, why is this important? Well, because if Jesus had the connotation for Colossus as remedial implied in his usage of the term, then we know for sure that the pruning couldn't be everlasting. I mean, a remedial punishment that takes forever to bestow upon the person is never taught, right? A lesson that takes forever to teach is never actually taught. So those are some of my reasons for casting doubt on Matthew 25, 46. I have many others, but... I just want to keep everything simple. I don't find it persuasive at all. Now, this really affects annihilationism in particular, because annihilationists often want to hold that the extinction, cessation of existence, whatever you want to call it, is an eternal punishment. But if there's no precedence for this in the, in the biblical literature, this should cause caution. So a text annihilationist like Chris Date often go to is here. But I just don't see this um, in the evidence of the secular literature at the time. 
Um, so that's one of my cautions with Matthew 25, 46. Now, first Thessalonians 6, uh, 1, 6 through 9. I actually talked with Chris Date about this. So not all annihilationists actually think this is a good proof text to use, because if you take a preterist approach that many of the warnings that are given in Scripture were actually fulfilled in the first century, this might actually be one of them. In fact, there are many indications that this is probably the most plausible interpretation. Again, the word I talked with David Bentley Hart about this. There could be two plausible interpretations for this passage for eternal destruction. It could mean eternal destruction in the sense of the destruction of the age to come. That would simply mean upon Christ's return, these people are killed. That's it. Or it could mean that God, as we see, Aloria Romelli makes this case in her book with David Constant, that God is an eternal source, and that which proceeds from him proceeds from an eternal source. Um, I think that I would lean more so with the Preterist approach than I would David Bentley Hart's approach. And I think that there are reasons in the past. For example, he's sp talking specifically to the Thessalonican church. They're being persecuted, right? We see in the book of Acts who's persecuting them. It's, all, it's oftentimes Jewish opposition. And he's giving hope. Don't worry. I know you're being afflicted, but Christ will come and repay them in kind, right? And on a previous approach, that's exactly what happened. Now, if we were to take these people as Jewish oppressors, the Jewish nation was wiped out and their power to oppress people was nullified. Now, if we were to take their oppressors as Romans, in the uh, later centuries, the Vandals, the Visigoths, the Barbarians plowed through the Roman territory and devastated them, replying in like, in kind, for what the Romans uh, may have done to the Thessalonican church. We see this precedent in the Old Testament where we have this idea that this nation did this to Israel, but don't worry, God will repay them. And he repays them in history. It's not some idea that, well, God will wait, you know, 6,000, 8,000, 100,000 years until he repays these people. No, he repays them in time in history, like Babylon and Assyria and Nineveh. So um, those would be some approaches that I would take with First Thessalonians and with Matthew 25. Yeah, I think that's all very plausible. Um, having read my book, you know that I, I consider it kind of a wash in terms of all the, <clears throat> the biblical evidence for the various views, <clears throat> which is why I think a, a deeper philosophical inquiry needs to be made. And that's what motivated the book. So I want to move on to um, some of these other considerations that you could call, I guess, philosophical mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> that you're familiar with. Um, let's see. So one of them. Um, I guess one of my main concerns uh, as a critique of uh, universalism is how it seems to undermine the concept of salvation, um, or at least it weakens the idea, you know, on the traditional view and on the, the conditionalist view. Um, when a person is saved, they, they avert um, a real possibility of destruction. However, that's interpreted in terms of permanent uh, either extinction or permanent um, conscious torment. Whereas in the universalist view, um, it's hard to, to generate any sense of really <clears throat> uh, as robust a concept of salvation. So I'm wondering how you'd Sure, doing? I have several thoughts. Uh, first of all, it sounds very much like my acquaintance Gregory Boyd's take on open theism, is that we should reject certain conceptions of God because 
they're not as grand and as great and as adventurous as the open theist view. So I'd, I'd be very careful of using similar premises. However, there's several things to say. First of all, it's a small price to pay for universal salvation is one thought is um, so what would be the idea. So what? Um, another thing I point well, out is so that what? <clears throat> just to interject, okay. the so what would be that it seems to be um, <clears throat> a uh, significant um, overarching biblical theme that we are saved from something horrible. So it would be mm -hmm. kind of a, a, a general backing of scripture based in this idea, again, recurring biblical theme that we are saved from something unspeakably horrible. So that would only seem then to go against, I guess, your argument against this particular type of universalism. As you know, there are different, uh, there are some who say we must be saved. There's some who say that we will be saved. So it just turned out all right in this world that God created, but that might not have been the case in others. Now, um, I think there are flaws in this because I, mean, because I think that weak universalism isn't as strong philosophically as strong universalism. So there's questions there. One thing that I would point out is that the Greek word soteria that is used saved is often used in many different senses. Mm -hmm. And I think that your objection has power in the evangelical community, but maybe not so much in perhaps the orthodox community because salvation is not the goal i mean union with god is the goal itself that's the so for example if i'm seeking to go to disney world from new jersey and i get lost well the goal isn't getting unlost the goal is still to get to disney but i can't get to disney unless i get unlost and so if the goal is union with god salvation is a necessary means to that end but it is not the end in and of itself so for example jesus never said go and make converts of the whole world. He never said that. He said, go and make disciples. And so I think there's this more so an emphasis in the Eastern tradition about union with God, even the Catholic tradition about sanctification, now it's important. In the Protestant tradition, it's often been elevated the notion of justification. And I think that's why we place so much emphasis on this Protestant idea of salvation that perhaps other Christians and tra different traditions just don't agree uh, with in terms of the concept, if that makes sense. <clears throat> Interesting. Uh, so another concern, I guess I have a kind of a dual concern ha here having to do with freedom on the human side and on the divine side. And these would be two of my most serious misgivings regarding universalism. Maybe you can disabuse me. Um, but on the human side, if, uh, if it's a guarantee, if it's, if it's absolutely determined, if you will, that everyone will be saved, then that seems to militate um, very deeply against the, the prevailing view of freedom among uh, philosophers and theologians these days, which is a libertarian view, which says that the will cannot be completely determined uh, by outside forces, God or whatever, if uh, a human being is to actually be free, they must have the power of contrary choice. How does um, this guarantee that everyone in the end will be saved, presumably through uh, the choices that they make, a free choice to embrace Christ. How does that not contradict um, a libertarian concept of freedom? So um, first, I want to provide two resources for those watching. First, is I just got this book today by my friend Tom Talbot. It's Understanding the Free Will Controversy, new book. Can't wait to read it. I didn't know Second that. Yeah, I was really excited. Um, Tom, actually, when he was writing this, um, he shared some of his thoughts with me. And so I was really excited to read this book. Um, the other, you probably know this, Jim, is by David Bentley Hart. 
that all shall be saved. Yeah. Um, David Bentley Hart, I guess you could say in the Lord of the Rings, there is the Gandalf said that uh, in three days time, look to the east, right? And you'll see the white rider. He's coming to rescue you. And I guess for many universalists, David Bentley Hart is that Eastern white rider come from, come from the East to save them. Now, the question of libertarian freedom, I guess, I mean, as you know, um, Jim, there's another book that I have here um, where there was much debate between Walls. Uh, remind me how to pronounce his name because even when I talk to him, I think I butcher. Is it Eric Ritan? I call him Ritan, but I don't know. Ritan. We'll go with Ritan. So they all participated in this book, Universal Salvation, the Current Debate. And I am highly skeptical of the libertarian um, view of freedom. Oh, as many it. Yes. So you're, you're a compatibilist? No. Um, I've, I'd affirm the view that I guess Hart, Riton, and Talbot affirm. But let, let's, uh, I want, I'm glad you said that because here's the thing. There are, as you well know, Calvinistic um, universalists who hold a very strong view of divine sovereignty and divine grace. Um, I think Gary Buchanan wouldn't call himself one, but if you read his works, it really seems that he leans in that direction. Um, and there are Peter Hyatt is a Calvinistic universalist today that um, is a friend of mine. So if you were to bring up to the question of libertarian freedom, these compatibilists wouldn't really care. It wouldn't really affect them. Yep. Now, this is a concern for free will theists, as you rightly note. It is a large concern. But um, as I go into my book, I think that it, it's hard depending on how you define libertarian freedom to make it work with universal. And that is true. But again, it depends how you define it. I think how often people define it, it can almost seem that it's arbitrary, random voluntary, uh, voluntarism. I mean, we have to be careful in the language that we use. So Karl Barth, for example, said that God did not create an indifferent creature. He created his creature. I mean, we acknowledge that we're made in the Imago Dei, whatever on earth that means. So we are not indifferent creatures. In fact, I think David Bentley Hart makes an excellent case that we need some infinite transcendental end that motivates our choices. For example, um, I go to the gym. Well, why do I? Well, I'll use a better one. I make money. Well, why do I make money? So that I can pay my bills. Well, why do you want to pay your bills? You get it. It goes on and on and on. And there's reason. And it has to find its ultimate reason in an infinite source. So it's God that ultimately motivates our choices. Um, so, I mean, we could spend all day on this, but I'd say that uh, the compatibilists wouldn't much care. Uh, or they'd actually, I've talked to some who see it, it's quite blasphemous, the notion of libertarian freedom. Uh, whereas others in another camp would attempt to say that libertarian freedom is quite compatible so long as it's properly defined, the logical limits of free choice. But now let's let's say, Jim, that even if at the end of the day, libertarian freedom were just so void of rationalism and just random choice, okay, which I know people don't like and they won't take it that way. But let's say it just was that. Well, Eric Riton, as you well know, in his book, God's Final Victory with John Cronin, makes an argument for, I think it's the infinite opportunity argument, uh, yeah. where it's kind of like penny being thrown. Now, given that there are not infinite persons, and if every choice was just, I mean, 50% chance, right, that all the possible worlds, Riton makes uh, the observation that perhaps mathematically it will be all but certain that eventually all but choose. It's not logically certain, yeah. it's mathematically. Now, this reminds me of debates between Christians and atheists. Where this is often the case, they say, well, that's not logically, it's not logically possible, right? It's, there's a logical possibility that God didn't create based on that stat. It's still logically, yeah, but mathematically it doesn't look that way. And why do we argue one way with the atheist and then we argue one completely different way with the universalist? So those are some of my observations. Well, I think it's an understatement to say it's hard, as you said earlier, yeah. to reconcile uh, libertarianism with the universalism and um uh, when it comes to compatibilist 
Calvinists, this is just uh, an interesting observation um, I've, I've made that uh, if, if one is a, if one is a Calvinist, a compatibilist, right? Calvinist <laughs> universalist. Um, yeah, that, that really seems to just to be a, um, a universalist actually um, eliminates pretty much the whole debate between the Calvinists and, and the Arminians. If you think about it. whatever is offensive in Calvinism uh, to most Arminians um, you know, is defanged by the reassurance that, well, in the end, everybody is saved, right? So who cares whether you shouldn't care if you're an Arminian, if we affirm total depravity, um, if everybody in the end is saved and God overcomes that. I mean, that's the, the ultimate consequence that we can all uh, rest in. And so on down through perseverance of the saints, these these issues become... Um, I don't know if they're trivial, but of a lot less moment um, that uh, Calvinists and Arminians have historically differed on. So that that seems to me a, a very salutary um, consequence of the universalist view that I've, I've never seen um, anyone point out before. But what do you think of that? Yeah, um, Tom Talbot, I think, has an article about three views of God, and this is what he gets into, is that universalism brings together um, the ultimately what Arminianism wants and what Calvinism wants. Most times what Arminianism rejects is the idea of reprobation, the doctrine of reprobation or double predestination. But that doesn't exist on universalism. So I think you're absolutely right. I think it actually a Calvinistic view. I disagree with David Bentley Hart on this one. I think that a Calvinistic view of universalism can actually be quite beautiful uh, for many reasons. And I think that the love of God uh, makes more sense so on this view than the regular Calvinist view. In fact, um, I have severe reservation in both the Arminian view and the Calvinist view, given traditionalism, that God actually loves all persons. So, for example, you don't even have to be a Calvinist. Let's say that you're a free will theist who believes after death um, it's over, right? That after death, no more chances. So I have to ask, does God continue to love that individual in hell? And if so, how does he show that love towards that individual? Well, I've seen some free will theists say, well, God no longer loves that individual, which is quite odd if you square with Scripture and other statements that God is essentially loving, right? So, so all his, I mean, if you hold to divine simplicity, that is, all his actions would come from a uh, standpoint of love or have imprints of love. Now, love can be harsh. That is true. Uh, but it's still it's still a form of love. So, but I've seen some people say that God no longer loves them, even free will theists. So I have reservations. And now the Calvinist, he never. Arthur W. Pink says it will become clear that he never loved them in the first place. I have even graver concerns with that yeah. view. I feel the force of that um, as a Calvinist. You know, when I encounter a Jerry Walls who's who's <laughs> as outspoken and fervent on this as anyone, I feel the the force. You know. Of the point that uh, on the Calvinist view, um, God doesn't love everyone from from all eternity. That is a tough pill to swallow, and this is where it, the the universalist view certainly provides some relief on that. You can maintain that uh, God loves everyone, and those who do go to hell temporarily, He still loves them, and He's going to prove it by restoring them in the end. 
but you still have um, a problem of evil there because presumably hell uh, for your your typical restorationist, tell me if it's if, if it's true of you, is still a severe kind of suffering. Um, walls in one place really um, diminishes that to the point of like. Severe. Dis- Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the kind of torment it seems to, to be ascribed uh, to hell by the biblical writers and by Jesus himself. You know, we're not talking about an extended, you know, discomfort. We're talking about a horrible kind of torture. And that's something for the, for the restorationist still uh, needs to be struggled with. And you're, you are affirming that God is, particularly if you're a Calvinist universalist, that's something that God is intending and has intended for those people for all eternity, that they suffer for who knows how long extreme torment. You know, So in that sense, the, the universalist, the restorationist universalist does still have a problem. What do you think of that? So, um, yeah, I have several thoughts on that. Uh, first of all, I entirely disagree with Jerry, Jerry Walls respectfully on this issue. Second of all, um, I'd have a concern that at least on the universalist view, it winds up for the betterment of the individual in the end. On, on the traditionalist, Calvinist view, conditionalist, it doesn't uh, wind up for the good of that person. But then we have to get into what exactly is that person experiencing and how, I mean, I understand that people want to say on Calvin, God causes things, but there has to be a differentiation me between God intends something and he causes something. So it gets really, really complex in literature. But all that to say... Um, I think, I think that perhaps what one could say is that there are certain things or goods that could not be had unless a hell existed, right? Even on a Calvinistic universalist view. So I'll give you an example. Why have a fall at all on Calvinistic universalism is the question that comes up. Well, I can imagine a, a lot of goods. The incarnation is the one that instantly comes to mind. Without the fall, uh, it wouldn't be necessary for an incarnation. Romans 3 points to another one, God's judgment of sin. I mean, God's righteousness is displayed in the judgment of sin. Now, I believe that is true to the extent that God's righteousness um, is motivated by desire to kind of discipline that child, to educate that child, and push them towards the good. For example, I use this analogy. If my son were to bully another child, my goodness would be demonstrated should I punish that my child to an extent in order that he see the worth in other people and then be able to be reintegrated into that society of human individuals. If, on the other hand, I was to, say, torture and kill my child, I don't think my goodness would be manifested in my judgment of my child's wrong action. So on universal, I think God's righteousness is clearly demonstrated in the face of human sin. I find it questionable on other views. So uh, I think that there are goods such as incarnation, the atonement, redemption itself. I mean, it's one thing for someone to say, Jim, if you mess up, uh, don't worry, I got your back, I'll forgive you. It's another thing to actually have gone and lived it through. Um, I, here's another example that I use. Let's take Adam. Um, so I want to contrast the Calvinist universalist with the traditionalist Calvinist. So on traditionalist Calvinism, they often say that God shows his love through material blessings. I find this just remarkably just ludicrous because John Calvin himself says that these blessings are actually a means of torment in hell. So, for example, a king who had a great kingdom is going to have it worse in hell than the beggar who had just about nothing because he doesn't have much to miss, whereas the king does. So even the bestowal of these blessings are ultimately meant for greater for greater punishments in hell. Whereas um, on, I guess, a Calvinistic uh, form of universalism, God's love seems to be, let's take Adam. 
Adam plunged the whole world into sin and depravity. So he knows the deaths of the wrong that he has done. He knows what he deserves. And yet when God shows grace to him, I'll bet you what? I'll bet you he thinks he has the best testimony among us. They say, hallelujah, I now, I now know more than any. This is a Romans 6 right here, right? Shall we sin that grace shall abound more? I mean, if your gospel doesn't raise that question, you're probably not preaching the right gospel. That question should come up. And so let's just Adam himself, the fount of all of our problems to, an, to a sense, depending on what view you take. I think that Adam will look back on his life and even if it all was determined, say, I'm glad that happened to me because now I see how just how much the grace of God is, how much his mercy and his love demonstrated in my own life. So even a case like Adam, I think God can use for good. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. I'm, I'm certainly a proponent of the soul making theodicy, right? The greater good theodicy. Um, that, you know, whatever suffering God ordains for us or permits, if you take a, um, a non-Calvinist view, uh, it's for the sake of our ultimate good, right? <clears throat> we affirm that in smaller things like going to the dentist. Um, okay, I'm going to endure this pain for a greater good. Uh, what is more precious and valuable? than the goods of the soul, building virtue in us and, and so on. And so many of the virtues are contingent upon a certain amount of suffering or experiencing moral evil that's directed our way. All right. So then we've talked about human freedom. I want one more point, if I could, um, Jim, because I want to put a little bit more pressure on the traditionalist Calvinist. So because people will say, well, perhaps God is it's within his power to save all, right? Or perhaps God wants to demonstrate his glory through some other means, namely destruction or torment, right? But John Piper, for example, takes the road that um, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. In fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith said that the chief end of man is to glorify God. And some say to enjoy him forever. Well, is that the chief end of some men or all men? And if John Piper is right, then as he says, the glorification of God is not at odds with our satisfaction, our being made one with him. So if God is really in the glory making business, as traditionalist Calvinists assume, then it would seem that he'd get more glory in all being satisfied in him. Um, so I think this is a question about the character and the nature of God. If free will is not a hindrance for God, and if creatures in union with God brings more glory right if it brings him the most glory then why wouldn't he pursue this route why wouldn't if this is the best story then why wouldn't he tell it now i'm not saying this is the best of all possible yeah. worlds i don't think there is such a world but yeah yeah i think that's an argument that has been at least relative to my research and reading underused on uh in defensive universalism is that i don't know if it's a kind of grace utilitarian argument that um you have on the utility on the universalist view you have a kind of a maximization of grace right what what is a greater demonstration in the, of divine grace than that he saves everybody um and not just some i think there are some things to said in response to that from an aesthetic standpoint but it seems like if i was a universalist i would <laughs> deploy that argument more uh <laughs> but now last concern uh, we've talked about human freedom. Now let's talk about divine freedom mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the universalist view and its implication that uh, God must save everyone that he creates. My concern is that somehow on this doctrine, we end up with the implication that God is not free to 
um, end the existence of any conscious being, at least let's say a human being or beings made in his image, right? That it, it somehow, um, it restricts God's freedom. If he's going to make any uh, human being, then on the universalist view, he must save them. He is bound and determined to keep them alive forever. So isn't that a, an unfortunate or problematic restriction of divine freedom, however much we might like it for aesthetic reasons, psychological reasons? So I would differentiate between psychological uh, ability and physical ability. So no one denies that, well, there might be some, but I certainly don't deny that God is physically capable of destroying all. Um, but I don't think that psychologically that is within the character of God. For example, the saints so metaphysically, he's metaphysically capable. We can put it that way. Yeah, point. yeah. So the saint, well, I see like Jerry Walsh prefers the term psychological. That's why I used it. So met, let's use metaphysical. So um, the saints in heaven, many people are agreed, are not metaphysically capable of sinning. They are physically, but they're not metaphysically. Or well, God, let's say, I was suggesting metaphysical instead of physical. Which I, are using. Turn the physical then. Yeah, that God is metaphysically or ontologically capable of, of destroying whatever he creates. Yes. But then the the distinction you're making is between that and what? Something psychological more is what I use. Yeah, that's fine. So psychological. Okay. So we know that God cannot sin. Now, this is if you hold that view. There are some actually Christians who believe that God can sin and that he has sinned, or that he can sin, but he has not sinned. But I don't know about you, Jim, but I don't affirm that view. I think God cannot lie. He, I mean, he directly says that. God cannot tempt, James 1.13. I mean, I know that Descartes and others want to say that when you say God can't, stop, right? But I disagree. There are certain things that God can't do. So it's quite odd to me when this objection comes. It's almost like, could you imagine, Jim, you have a child, and you tell the child, you know, I could murder you. I was thinking of a harsher thing. Let's go with murder. I could murder you, right? I have it within my power, but it just so happens that I don't feel like I should do it. <laughs> I mean, it's an absurd notion, but we know given the essential character of God, that God is love. God cannot tempt. God cannot do evil. Uh, God cannot sin. And given divine benevolence as essential attribute, I think that God cannot do such a thing. Eternally torment a person or annihilate. It's not within his character. Now to say that this limits God seems to me just quite odd given scriptural grounds because then you have to say well then god can sin god can tempt or is that limiting god's capabilities too so i'd say that my warrant for that view comes directly from scriptural statements okay and the, the classical concept of god mm -hmm. um, where we say there's certain things that god can't do because they contradict his nature he can't make a round exactly. square right he can't make a married bachelor um and he can't sin so I, I think that's a good response. Uh, how about this? Um, I, I think I know how you, you would respond, but I'd like to hear your articulation. Uh, what do you say about the concept of unforgivable sin okay. and, and how that impacts your view as a universalist? How, how do you account for that concept? Um, so I, I want to be honest. When I was first studying, uh, getting into these doctrines, that was one of the questions that really stuck in my mind was how do universalists account for the unpardonable sin? Um, and I think that others should ask that same question too. Whoever's listening should think, what does it mean? What did Christ mean by the unforgivable sin? Now, as you well know, uh, Jim, 
there is debate about what even that sin is. I mean, there are varied views, but we don't need to get into that. I think a simple sin is better translated as unpardonable, not unforgivable. Um, that's how the Greek seems to take it. And I think what, what just fogs this is our connotations of forgiveness. So, for example, if I were to smash a window as a child, uh, my parents my, uh, would probably say, you know, I forgive you, but you still got to pay for it. Now, the Greeks wouldn't understand this as that. That's not forgiveness. You didn't forgive him because how they meant the word forgiveness was not the same thing as the Christian connotation that developed over time. It was this idea of pardon, remission. You don't have to pay for that window. You don't have to pay me back. And so that seems to be the, uh, how I would take this passage. Jesus is saying there are certain sins that cannot be simply pardoned. It's just not willy-nilly God pardons it, right? There, are, For example, as believers— um, depending on what your view is, we are not going to go through purgatory unless your view is different. We're not going to th go through punishments. I mean, Jerry Walls, um, oh boy. Jerry Sorry. Walls believes in a view of purgatory that doesn't include punishments. Now, here we would disagree with the Roman Catholic Church. So we think that God has forgiven us of those sins. He has pardoned them in the sense that we don't need to undergo those relevant punishments. So those sins are pardoned, but perhaps there are certain sins that can't be simply willy-nilly pardoned. That because the individual is not psychologically, as long as he remains in those sins, psychologically capable of turning to God. So these sins must be, there must be a chastening. He can't just pardon the sin. He must chasten the individual. Uh, and I think that you'll find this in Origen and Gregory Nessus. So that's the word that I take. It's, first of, it's interesting. In the Greek manuscripts, the word never actually never appears. So again, it's translation issue. Um, it would be manuscript um, issue, how we look at the different manuscripts, uh, interpretative, uh, interpretation issue. So all that to say, I would say it's better translated the unpardonable sin. That okay. God will not simply pardon the sin. Now, many universalists would deal with it by saying that, well, those who commit this sin, then um, they are committed to, or um, they are consigned to, to pay for that sin by suffering in hell. So they are paying for their own sins, but they, eventually that payment can be made by suffering who knows how long and how severe the torment. Yeah. That's not your view. So, yeah, I think we need to distinguish between a necessary condition and a sufficient condition. It's, it's, quite, uh, it's quite inappropriate of Michael, Clem, uh, Michael McClement, who says that universalists basically teach that some are saved by Christ and others by hell. That's ridiculous uh, because... What would Michael McClellan think be, about it? That would be a works righteousness, right? I mean, it's, yes, exactly, exactly. Maybe so, it's more passive, and I'm I'm suffering in torment without actually doing anything, and yet I'm doing something. I'm enduring it, and that earns my salvation. Yes, exactly. So I want to distinguish between a necessary uh, condition and a sufficient condition. I don't believe that suffering for that sin is a sufficient condition of salvation. I simply don't for that individual. Uh, there must be genuine repentance. There must be genuine faith involved, uh, and there must be grace applied. So simply because the person finishes his punishment doesn't mean, he, all right, you get to walk scot-free. That's not true at all. He can stay there. In fact, uh, if you believe that punishments deserve a limited proportion of time, then it may be that he might be there hundreds of years after. I don't know how long, right? But he might be there a very long time after because even though he has satisfied that certain sin, he's still resistant to the grace of God. So while it's a necessary condition, it's not a sufficient condition. And I'll, I'll give you um, an analogy that I'll use in response to Michael McClement. So there are soldiers who on the battlefield, they convert because of what they've experienced, right? There are the shells in the background, the screams and all this, and they cry out to God. 
But none of us say he was saved by the battlefield. We say he was saved by Christ. We acknowledge that the condition and the circumstances he found him in influenced his decision. In the same way, I would never say that a person is saved by hell. They're always saved by God through grace. So the punishment that they endure is a necessary condition, but not a sufficient one. Okay, good. <laughs> I just popped myself back in. I don't know where you guys we're at like an hour twenty, so I don't know if there's anything else you guys want to cover. If you want to like start to wrap it up, I, well, sure. I, if I could put Jim in the hot seat because I feel like I've been in the hot seat <laughs> some time. So, um, Jim, okay. So starting off, I'm curious. So, what would you think is perhaps some of the strongest? Perhaps I can give some uh, for your case as well. What do you think are some of the strongest philosophical arguments for my position? For your position. Yes. Um, I think <laughs> really um, how it seems to, if, it, if it's successful, um, it eliminates or solves a major aspect of the, the problem of evil. I mean, that's just huge. Uh, as you know, you've read my book. Um, this is where I hammer repeatedly against eternal conscious torment you have an eternal injustice you got a justice problem that is extraordinarily severe is people in hell are suffering eternally uh, because they've they the status argument right they've they've sinned against a um a morally perfect being infinite being and so they need to suffer infinitely but you can never suffer infinitely because at any point however many trillions of years of suffering it's still finite so there will always be unpaid for unsuffered for unpunished sins and that's true if you take the continuing sin thesis as well and then you have just this problem of eternal suffering and eternal rebellion you've got You've got these persistent moral uh, pr problems of evil as well as the, the psychological, you know, uh, suffering uh, dimension of the problem of evil that is eternal. You have eternal evil on the eternal conscious torment, you know, traditional view. Um, the conditionalist and the universalist overcome that, right? So that's a merit I acknowledge on the universalist side. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, the, um, kind of maximization of grace, um, that is, I think a powerful point that, you know, the universalist can use. So I'd say the, the, the main and significant, um, uh, positive feature of universalism is, how it overcomes or aims to overcome the problem of evil. Yeah, I mean, you probably read, uh, I think you actually, you referenced it several times in your book, Marilyn McCord uh, Adams' book, um, I think it's called Horrendous Evils and the Goodness of God, a fantastic yeah. book. And uh, I think she makes a very uh, strong, and John Hick as well. What's interesting about their theodicies is that they seem only to work on universalism <laughs> um, as far as those theodicies. Now, those theodicies might be imperfect, as Eleanor Stump seems to argue. So they might not be the correct theodicies. But for those who hold to the soul, as you point out in your book, the soul making the theodicy, John Hick explicitly states several times in his book that without universalism, that basically his theodicy falls apart. 
Mm. And I would concur with it, which is why perhaps it could be a traditionalist might try to supplement uh, the problem, uh, those theodicies there. So I'm with you on that. And the problem of evil, I'd say that if every creature, it comes to the point where they receive union with God, which is an infinite good, incommensurate with anything else, then it just doesn't outweigh goods. It obliterates evils and just outweigh them. Um, yeah. So I think you're right there. Now, perhaps what I could say, I think the strongest case I find for conditionalism is in the book of Revelation. Um, now, there's something to be said about your strongest case being in the book of Revelation, as it seems to be, uh, I think, for many people, an obscure book. But I will say that the term, the second death in particular, how do we understand the second death, is very difficult. Uh, in fact, I think that if you just look at the passage, it could seem, it doesn't seem to point towards traditionalism, but it may seem at first glance to have conditionalist uh, implications in mind. So I say, for me, that's what I found the most convincing proof is in the book of Revelation. Um, specifically in terminology regarding the second death. Um, so I'd say, yeah, that's probably one of the strongest points for me. I say philosophically, Jim, it's fair to say that there aren't that many conditionalist philosophers. There are a lot of, they're making headway in biblical scholarship with people like Richard Baucom and I. Howard Marshall and others. But as far as philosophers, I'm not aware of uh, exactly groundbreaking new studies done and how annihilation can be compatible uh, philosophically, I mean, yep, that's why I wrote the book. <laughs> yeah, I think Zach wants us to wrap up now. That's probably a good point to end on. All right, yeah, I mean, I think this is probably a good point. I mean, you could go on forever, but I think for um, we can go on here, <laughs> <laughs> until we get an island, all get it, uh, until annihilation, or until we all get reconciled. Um, in heaven, we can go on forever, yep. so things like that. Well, um it's been really good and I've really enjoyed just like sitting back here and just like enjoying you guys go back and forth. So maybe now let's just like get into like closing remarks. Um, so I'm trying to think who I mean, Andrew kind of started things. So Andrew go first go. and then Jim wrap things up and we'll head off on our merry ways. You want me to go first or you want Jim yeah, to go I think first? Andrew, I mean, unless Jim's like dying to go first, um, you know, go ahead. Sure. Um, so in the end, I'd say that what someone should take away from this is that, Neither Jim or I is a heretic, first of all. We can, trace, we can trace our views to the early church. There are proponents of our respective views in the early church. There is no creeds that condemn it. And despite the uh, fanatical uh, claims of some who say that Jim and I, our views were condemned at different ecumenical councils, those are by people who never actually read scholarship on this issue. Neither Jim nor my view was condemned in an ecumenical council. Uh, and I'd say that it's understandable how someone like Jim or I might see our teachings in scripture. Uh, we should not say that Jim or I are buffoons and that we are just simply blind when we read scripture. No, in fact, there are good reasons uh, for thinking that our respective interpretations can be found in scripture. Putting it together is the hard part. One of the uh, last points I want to make is that I find that, as it seems Jim does, that I hold theological concerns in mind just as highly as I do exegetical concerns. I, I do have this concern that if we were to exegetically just literally interpret everything, we'd have to become Marcionites. Um, I, that's just a concern that I have. And so we have to be very, very careful when we're talking about exegesis and we're talking about theology and how those interact, or even how philosophy and theology interact. So those are some concerns when approaching this issue. As far as what someone is to do with this, um, I really encourage people to go look at Jim's book. And when my book comes out, please buy my book. <laughs> Right. I, so I can just eat at nights, folks. 
but I hope that you have uh, learned something of note from this conversation. And yeah. Dr. Spiegel was amazing, by the way, I have to say. Thank you. I, I would uh, affirm everything you just said, and I'm excited to see uh, your book. I hope uh, you'll get me a, a comp copy as yes. soon as that's available. Um, <clears throat> I really appreciated the work of, of Robin Perry, um, a.k.a. Gregory McDonald, <laughs> when he went by that pseudonym. Um, but he's a gracious guy, you know, and, uh, as are you, um, and I, I just, one of the things I really appreciate about the, I guess the com contemporary debate on this is, uh, whether it's conditionalists like Chris date or you, uh, and Robin on the universalist side, there's a lot of, um, open, humble, respectful inquiry and dialogue going on. And that can only be a good thing, I believe. Well, it's been great. And I'd really like to echo, like you guys did a great job being like respectful and like, not that I had any like worries about that going into this, but I was like, well, maybe I'll have to like go in and like transition at some points, but you guys were just like on top of it. Like, Hey, let's go to this and go to this. And um, yeah, it was, a, I think it was a great example of like godly dialogue on top of like this. So Andrew Jam, thank you so much for joining me. Um, Last thing is, how can people like follow and connect with both of you guys? So maybe let's start with Andrew on that to wrap up. Sure. I think the best way of following me is on Instagram. I try to limit my social media use, but I do post things related to my work and my forthcoming book. And so if you're interested in finding out more details about what I believe and about the material I'll be publishing, just check out my Instagram. It's A-M-H-R-O-N-I-C-H. And what about you, Jim? I'm on Facebook as well, but I um, <clears throat> I don't get on there very often. I'm not much of a social media guy. I have a website called jimspiegel.com, and my wife and I have a blog called Wisdom and Folly, and it's up to readers to decide which one of us is which. Well, that's super cool. And Andrew, Jim, um, thank you so much for joining me today. I've really, really enjoyed listening to you guys. And I'm sure that everyone um, that listens as well has picked up a bunch of stuff. So thank you so much. And if you're new here, I encourage you to check out Andrew and Jim's work. And then if you're new, I always encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, and all that fun stuff to us. And that's it for now. And we'll catch you next time. And God bless. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Have a good one.